again. Good morning, everyone. We're really glad you're here today. As Greg said, honestly, this is going to be some of the most exciting stuff we've talked about. For the next five weeks, including this week, uh, I'm going to show you what I think has been part of God's design for us as a congregation from day one, from the moment we began about seven years ago. I also hope, and I believe sincerely, that what's going to happen for you as an individual is you're going to discover some of the things that God has been doing in your life that maybe have fallen on the back burner, that maybe you don't even... Uh, have a sense of or aren't even aware of, and that's going to encourage you. It's going to inspire you to know just how much your Heavenly Father loves you and how awesome He is and what a perfect, perfect plan He has for your life. And when we begin to engage that plan, experience Him, it changes everything. I think sincerely, you're going to hear some stuff over the next few weeks that I believe can change marriages. I, I really do. I think it can give a sense of purpose and meaning. I think it can literally change the dynamic in your school, in your home, in your work. That's how powerful I think what we're going to be talking about is uh, over the next few weeks. We're calling it Build Lives. Uh, this week, by the way, before I kind of get rolling in my message, I got an email from a gentleman that if you've been around our congregation for a little while, uh, you've heard of him before. His name is Pastor James, and he pastors the church in India that a year or so ago, we helped build a building for them, literally. We uh, sent some money at around Christmas time and built them a church building, and We've sent some money uh, on and off throughout the year, kind of helping with various projects. And he emailed me and said that there was an American evangelist missionary that had traveled to India over the last couple weeks and was preaching the gospel of Jesus in, uh, in that area of Kerala, where, where he is. And that American missionary's name is William Lee, and William was arrested this week um, for not finding or filling out the appropriate paperwork in order to be able to preach. Um, don't know if that was a mistake or if that was intentional or not. But the interesting thing is, is I know William Lee. Uh, he is a friend of mine from years ago. And it just reminded me just how powerful the church is. And it reminded me how around the world, not here in Westchester, but around the world, how much opposition there is to the message of Jesus. It really is a revolutionary, crazy idea. And when people get turned on about Jesus, it tends to make them less interested and some other things, other things that might be very good, other things that may not be very good, but the value of Jesus and his message begins to take priority in their life. And people around the world sacrifice significantly so that the message of Jesus can go forward. So I ask you this week as you pray to pray for Pastor James and the work in India, the network of pastors he have. They've all had to go. What he worded it as was underground. They aren't able to publicly proclaim the message of Jesus at all. A couple of them have been beaten up a few times just for preaching, and uh, it just, it's just a big deal that we partner with this church that we helped build a building for, but now we stand with them in partnership for the greater mission that they're doing. So I thought you'd like that update. Let me take you back several thousand years ago to a story in your Old Testament that you may have heard of. In fact, if you have a Bible and would like to go there, you can go to Exodus chapter 3. If you don't have one, the specific words I'll be referring to are on the screen behind me. I want to take you back to a guy by the name of Moses. Moses was and is still a powerful force for God in this world. He's been dead for a few thousand years. But his life, his message, his teachings, his example, what he did, what he started, how God used him, has profoundly affected the world and how we see it. In fact, today we're in a church. Pastor James is in a church. But the church began really a long time ago. It began centuries before this church began. It began centuries even. God was already beginning to prime the pump before Jesus came to this earth. In fact, many Bible scholars take us all the way back to the time of Moses, the time we're going to talk about for the beginning of the church. 
Now, you may or may not know this, but the Bible in the original language in which it was written was not written in English. It was written in primarily Hebrew, the language of the Hebrew people, the Old Testament, the Jews as we would call them. And it was written in Greek, the language of intellectual study and academic discourse in the New Testament, right? So in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the word for church doesn't exist. It's not a word that's used. There's a primary word that was used to describe the church, and it's a simple word. It's the word ecclesia, ecclesia. In fact, would you just humor me for a minute so I know you're awake? Would you say that word with me on the count of three? One, two, three. Ecclesia. Yeah, perfect. That's great. And that word simply is a Greek word that means, it has a very simple definition. It means called out, called out. Now, this is not being called out like what happens at your work environment when it comes time for the meeting and everybody was supposed to bring their piece of the puzzle and everybody brought their piece of the puzzle to the meeting except for one guy and he didn't bring his so somebody calls them out, right? And they point the finger and say, you didn't do the thing. It's not like that. It's not like when you, you know, your husband says, I'm going to take out the trash and then the garbage man comes the next morning and goes and the trash is still by and you call them out. That's not what this is. This is a calling out that says the idea here is, is that there's a group of people kind of existing in a reality. And God looked at them and calls them out from among the larger group into a different group. And that literally is the word ecclesia. And it's the word primarily translated as church in your Bible. So when you look at four corners when you look at Pastor James, when you look at every single church that's ever existed, in one sense, the church and the people that make it up, they are the called out ones. They're the ones who are called out from a few things. We're going to talk about that. And they're called in to something else. We're calling this entire series Build Lives because it gives for us in two words what we think church is really all about. There's a thousand ways to say this. We can say that the church is there for God, and it certainly is. The church is the design of God. It was his idea, and that's exactly right. But God has used the church throughout the ages, both in the Old Testament, in the kind of precursor of church as we understand it, and in the New Testament, the pure foundation of the church that we're still experiencing. God has used the church to build people, to build people towards his agenda and his purpose. It has been a revolutionary movement in the world. It has been a powerful force for change for individuals, societies, and countries. The church is a powerful thing. And unfortunately, guys, the church has fallen on hard times in our, in our generation. In, in my generation, some of you are older in your generation, and, and some of you are younger in your generation, the church has fallen on hard times. We have a lot of kind of Lone Ranger Christians People who are connected to God, they say, or they have a spirituality, but they don't want anything to do with organized religion. They don't want anything to do with the church. They've seen some difficulties and challenges, real challenges in the church. They've seen scandal. They've seen money issues. They've seen morality issues. They've seen leadership go amok. They've seen all kinds of challenges, and they want nothing to do with the church because the church is made up of people. And have you ever been around a group of people that were perfect? I mean, let's just drill down. I bet you love your family. But I bet there are times that even in your group of people called your family that have similar DNA, that have made covenantal commitments to each other in a thing called marriage, I bet just because it's made up of people, even in your family, there are difficult things that happen. There are challenges. There are moments when you're not really enjoying the journey. Some people have had similar experiences that you've had in your family. While they have an affinity for the thing, they may even believe in the thing, the pain of it is so difficult that they want to pull back. 
They want to disengage from the thing. And yet God says that the church, these group of people that are kind of called out from some stuff and called into another dynamic, that that is a special dynamic. That's a special group. And he works powerfully in it. We can go all the way back in our Bibles to the time of Moses when God's going to look at the world and say, I've got a group of people I want to call out. And I want to take those people on a journey. And in that journey, I'm going to be leading them towards a special place. They called it the promised land. But it's not even just about the promised land that they're going to ultimately go to. It's about what I'm going to do in their lives and with them as they walk this journey. And we're going to look at one of the beginning moments, one of the, one of the first movements in this calling out that God's going to do. A calling out that hasn't stopped since this moment over 3,000 years ago. A calling out that got ramped up on steroids in the person of Jesus when he looked at a group of people and said, I will build my church. I will build my called out ones, my ecclesia. I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not be able to withhold against the movement of the church. And these people experience me as I call them out and they band together and they walk on the journey I'm taking them to, I will not only ultimately take them to heaven or a promised land, I will make their journey spectacular. I will change them along the way. They will grow and develop and change. And it will not be the same for them at the end of their journey as it was at the beginning. Life will be different. And before God, typically, often, not always necessarily, but when you read the Bible, you see this seems to be a pattern. Before he kind of does something in a group of people, he often does something in an individual. So if you're taking some notes today, if you want to do that, without like being over, trying to be overly profound, let me just give you a simple little truth here. That God often calls individuals to impact groups of people. Doesn't sound profound, does it? When you unpack it, it's huge. God calls moms, for instance, to impact their kids. And as much as the moms participate with God's work in their own lives, so the level of impact spiritually that those moms can have in their lives of the kids go up. And where moms do not participate with the work of God in their own life at an individual level, then if they don't do that, then the work of God in the family at large and in their kids can be stifled. God speaks to dads and husbands to lead their marriages and their families. And when husbands come to that engagement with God with an open heart, with an attitude that says, God, whatever you want, that's what I want and I'm willing, well, that work in that individual becomes a catalytic force for change in the entire family dynamic. And where those individuals, those men in the room here, where we don't participate with that, instead of being a catalytic force for change in our family towards God and his agenda, it often becomes a destructive dynamic. God speaks to pastors, church leaders, speaks to friends in friend groups. And he says, I want to work in you as an individual. But remember this, it's not just about you. I'm going to leverage you and your impact for something that will go far beyond what you ever thought or dreamed. God speaks into each one of us a sense of destiny and says, I am not going to show you the exact end point. I'm going to give you hints. I'm going to give you some sense of it. But what I want you to do is begin to walk with me and let me begin to mold and shape you. But remember, it's not just about you. This is where Moses was. Moses had an interesting beginning. I don't know if you know his story, so let me catch you up. Moses was born among the Hebrew people. 
at a time when they were not experiencing a favored status in their geographic homeland of Egypt. 430 years earlier, the family of Hebrews, a relatively small group of people, had ended up in Egypt under very favorable conditions. One of their brothers, Joseph, had risen to second in charge in Egypt. Because of his position and what he was able to provide, the family experienced unbelievable favor. They were given choice land. They were given unbelievable provision. But 430 years had passed. And the Bible tells us that there arose a leader in Egypt, a pharaoh that knew not Joseph. Didn't have a favorable opinion about what was going on. And over the 430 years, a small family had grown to some, could be as many as 2 million people. And they were no longer living favored status connected to this number two man in Egypt. Now they had become slaves and their daily existence looked like this. They took rocks and gravel and mud, put them in a pit, poured water on them, added straw to it, stomped on it to kind of mold those different elements together into a relative loose, thick form, put them in squared boxes and made them into the shape of bricks and set them out in the sun to dry. And then they would carry those bricks after they had dried in the sun to build whatever they were directed to build. Shrines to the leaders, tombs and buildings and municipal buildings. And this was their existence. It wasn't a choice they had. They didn't get up each day saying, I wonder what I'll do today. They knew what they were going to do. They were going to take the various pieces of mud and stone and straw and water, and they were going to construct bricks in order to construct buildings. Moses' life, by the way, was special because at the time that he was born, as a Hebrew child, that would have been his destiny. And yet, God saw fit to do something different in him. The leaders in charge of Egypt at the time were concerned about the growing population of the Hebrew people. What would happen, they said, if we go to war against an enemy? Will the Hebrew people among us turn against us? What will happen if they get so large and so influential that they turn against us from within? So what they decided to do was to kill all the Hebrew boys, all the baby boys that were born. And it was right at that time that Moses was born. God saw fit to protect his life, knew that there was something special in this boy that he would do. So Moses' mother makes, literally in the Hebrew language in which this is written, makes an ark of wood, a basket, if you will, covers it over inside and out with waterproofing material and puts this baby in the Nile River and sends him downstream. The instruction from the leadership was take every baby born and drown him in the Nile. And she's kind of, you know, spunky. And she says, I'll get him to the Nile, but I ain't drowning him. And so she puts him in a basket and sends him on his way and prays a prayer over him. God, protect him. And God providentially sees that this individual little basket floats down to the Pharaoh's daughter. And the Pharaoh picks up the basket, literally draws the baby out of the water. The word for that is Moshe. Moses, drawn out. He's drawn out of the water, Moshe. And he grows up in Pharaoh's home. Radical shift in his destiny. He's given the best education, the best meals, the best training. And yet there's a connection to his heritage. Because through a providential, crazy series of circumstances, God is directing the steps of this individual so that the person that is hired to care for the baby in the Pharaoh's house isn't an Egyptian, it's a Hebrew woman. And it's not any Hebrew woman. The very person hired to raise Moses under the shadow of Pharaoh is his own mother. She begins to teach him and train him, talks to him about the heritage 
of the Hebrews, even as he's getting unbelievable education and experience among the Egyptians. And very soon in Moses' life, the Bible tells us, there becomes a sense in him that he's supposed to do something profound. In fact, if you read in your New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 7, the writer of Acts tells us that Moses knew early on that he was supposed to lead his people, the Hebrews, out of bondage in Egypt. And he thought that the people, the, the Hebrews around him, would see this giftedness in him. And when he would begin the process, they would all rally, and he would be the great savior. So one day, he sees an Egyptian master beating one of his brothers. And he's torn because he knows his heritage. He's torn because he knows his destiny as an Egyptian connected to the house of Pharaoh. And a sense of justice rises up in him. I don't know exactly what he thought, but maybe he thought now is the time. And so in a very public sense, he looks around, thinks he's clear, and he slays the Egyptian taskmaster. The very next day, he sees a couple of Hebrews arguing, and he walks up in the full authority he has is connected to Pharaoh's house, and he says, why are you arguing? You need to stop doing that. And one of them says, what are you going to do, kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And fear settles on him. The Bible says he runs out into the desert. All of this happens in your Bible in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. We come to Exodus chapter 3, and we find that Moses now, at 40 years old, has not taken on the splendor of growing up in Pharaoh's house. He hasn't taken on the role of a servant as a Hebrew. He's wearing the hat of a shepherd. And he's tending his flocks in the desert. And he's married now. He has a wife. Her name's Zipporah. Not the most pleasant name in the world. I, I hope she was pretty because, you know, if not, that would just be tough. Every time you said her name, it's kind of awkward. Kinda. But Moses is married. And his father-in-law, Jethro, Jethro has a lot of influence in the desert. Nothing like Pharaoh had. Nothing like Moses had. And Moses is a shepherd. And the Bible says that one day, Moses is tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. And he decides to take them on the far side of the desert. Now here's something interesting. He, in one sense, is already on the far side of the desert. I mean, his life is, in one sense, off course. He's already in a different movement than he could have gone in one of two different ways full authority and power and might of Egypt, unbelievable repression and suppression as a slave, as a Hebrew. And yet neither one of those hats is he wearing. He is not where he thought he would be, as Acts told us, the liberator of his people. He's a shepherd leading sheep around the desert. In fact, I want to pick up the story with you right there. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. This father-in-law had a a religious influence over the area. He was a priest. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, a mountain, the mountain of God. I mean, Moses, Moses, maybe, maybe he thought, I blew it. I had an opportunity to lead the revolt. It was a burden that was already on my heart. And I, and I blew it because when I killed that Egyptian taskmaster, I, I put myself at odds with the power and the might of Egypt. Maybe he thought when he had this great vision to lead his people and to free his people, knew that it was something that God wanted to do, something that would honor God, something that he would feel great about. Maybe he thought that he had already blown it so much that the only thing left for him was to kind of live under the influence in an unhealthy way of his father-in-law. 
I mean, can you imagine what that was like to go from being the highest, at the highest pinnacles of authority in the, under, the, under the might of Egypt, and as a Hebrew even, to have done that, it would have been, been crazy, strange, and weird. And now the next moment he has to go beg his father-in-law for a job? That would have just been humiliating on one sense. And not a job of splendor and might, building great cathedrals and building great buildings and having people over which you're responsible, but tending sheep in a wilderness. Moses didn't realize something that I think sometimes we forget. Honestly, guys, I think churches forget this. God, God isn't interested in building people. I'm sorry, God isn't interested in building buildings. He's interested in building people. He really is. Egypt, in its might and in its authority and in its splendor and in its plenty, they knew that their heritage, their destiny, they thought that their value was in these great shrines that they would build. And God was calling a man by the name of Moses, putting in him the seeds of the beginning of being the called out people, saying to them very directly, buildings have their place. Monuments have their place. Power and splendor and might has its place. But the thing that is close to the heart of God is people. I mean, all through the story of the Bible, no matter which page you turn onto, God is working with and engaging people for a purpose that often they don't even fully understand. He's engaging people for something bigger than they would ever do for themselves. He's calling them out of whatever environment they're in into a new engagement with him. And it's a difficult transition for some people. It was difficult for Moses. He, I think, tried to accelerate the process. I feel like God maybe would like to use me to draw the Hebrew people out of slavery. And then in a moment of anger and frustration, he does something that rather than catapults him into that kind of leadership, propels him to the other side of the desert. And this is Moses' story. But I bet it wouldn't take much for us to drill down on some individuals in the room. And you would say, I had a similar dynamic happen to me. I had a hunch, a dream, a thought. I thought God was going to use me this way. I thought he was going to do this thing. And through a crazy series of events, maybe you were involved in them. Maybe, maybe you weren't. Maybe you made poor choices. Maybe you let your anger get the best. You found yourself in another place. Maybe somebody had authority over you. And... You found yourself in a different place. Maybe you have thought, like Moses must have thought, the dream is dead. It's over. There have been circumstances we couldn't control. There have been challenges that were bigger than us. We gave a promise that it would look like this, but it ended up looking like this. So what does God want to do now? Moses was on the far side of the desert, tending sheep, the most mundane, basic engagement he could be involved in. And it's in the most mundane thing as he was doing his job that something profound is going to happen. Something life-changing is going to happen. God's going to call an individual. And that individual is going to begin to participate with God. Not easily. Not quickly. They're going to begin a dialogue. And God is going to work with Moses. And changed Moses' life. At 40 years old, after massive failure, after significant emotional disengagement, after embarrassment and humiliation, after the promise of grandeur, but nothing at all looking like grandeur as you're trying to avoid sheep droppings as you follow them around the desert. 
Here's what your Bible says in verse 2. There, there, on the other side of the desert, the far side, about as far away from Egypt as you can get, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So verse 3 says, so Moses thought, hey, I'll go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. Verse 4, this is interesting to me. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, let me just make something obvious. It didn't surprise the Lord that Moses went over to look. He didn't look down and go, oh, look, he's going over, yay. That phrase is in our Bible to let us know that there's something profound happening here. It's profound in the sense that Moses does engage. He's so busy living his life, he could have, in tending the sheep, he's far away from home, he could have said, I don't have time to engage that thing over there. I'm going to move on. I'm going to keep going. I've got to get home by dark. I don't know what he might have thought, but he could have thought a lot of things, but it was special and notable to God that Moses didn't do that, and instead he moved closer. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from the, within the bush, and he says, Moses, Moses. What would have happened if Moses would have never turned aside to see the burning bush? What if he didn't have enough margin? What if he felt pressed on every side that he didn't take time? We don't really know because that's not the story, but there is something in here for us. Sometimes in church work, sometimes in family building, sometimes in employment and among friendships, we get so busy doing the work that's important. It's good, but it's not the thing that God cares most about. And if we're so busy doing good things that we miss God's best and great things, we cut ourselves off from some profoundly life-changing experiences that completely change the trajectories of our life. Moses here in this place. Moses is going to discover something about God when he says, here I am. Moses, Moses, here I am. But if he hadn't have had a certain amount of margin, if he hadn't had a certain amount of sensitivity to lean in, to go investigate. Can I, can I just say something here? I have a hunch that all around us, there are burning bushes. I really believe this. That God is at work over here and over here. Your life is here, but he's over at work doing here and here and here. And sometimes we're so busy with other priorities, with other things that are important and even good, that we don't take time to go investigate what might be happening over here. I don't know about you. I know that happens to me a lot. And what I do, sometimes without even knowing it, I remove myself from this powerful engagement with God. And in God's economy, in God's world, in God's value list, it's always going to be about people. Always. It is. He sends His Spirit. He sends His Son His son raised from the dead. He sent the gift of the Holy Spirit, empowered people with spiritual gifts, created a church so that people, you and I, and everybody around us and our families could experience his plan for us, his goodness for us, his love for us. When I get busy on other stuff and I forget at the core of God's agenda, at the core of God's economy is people and the way they're treated and the way we treat each other, What I've effectively done without ever even meaning to. It's not like I do it on purpose. But I have removed myself from the environment of being affected by the very thing that God wants to do in my life. The very dream Moses had was to be a person who would lead others out of slavery. Good dream. 
And here was the beginning of the dream. But what if he hadn't taken time to turn away because he was so busy with other stuff? We don't know exactly what that story would look like, but we do know what the story that happened looks like. Verse 11, if you look down onto what Moses and the bush, God through the bush are having the discussion. Verse 11 says, said this, says this to us. But Moses said to the bush, after the bush says to him, after God through the bush, the angel of the Lord says to him, hey, I want you to go to Egypt. I hear the cry of my people and I see they're in distress and I want you to go down there and I want you to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And I want you to begin the dream, Moses. Now's the time. We're going to move forward. We're going to do the thing. Moses says, man, and who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? This is the very guy that 40 years earlier tried to rush the thing. <laughs> this is the guy who very earlier knew who he was. He was the man in charge. He was second in Egypt. He was, he was the guy that was going to force this thing here and now. And now here's his opportunity. And there's a hesitance. Something had shifted in him. Maybe it was the passage of time from the moment the dream was given to it began. Maybe it was a lack of confidence in himself, the kind of healthy, good confidence that comes to us and says, you're a person made in the image of God, gifted by God to do what you're called to do. There's no call on you that doesn't match the giftedness that God's put in you. That the skills you have in root form can grow and develop and the Holy Spirit can come in and energize so that whatever God's asked you to do, whatever is really on your plate to manage or lead, you are more than capable through him who's called you. Maybe he had forgotten that stuff. Maybe he had lost sight, not just of the dream, but who God made him to be. Maybe, maybe the weight of all of that just pressed down on him. And so he says to God, in the middle of this crazy, almost laughable environment, who, who am I? And over the next few verses, he's going to spend a lot of time giving God four other excuses why God can't use him. But what's interesting is, what God says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, is supposed to be the answer to all the excuses. God says to him, I'm going to be with you, Moses. And we're going to do great things. I'm going to be with you. It's a promise that God says to each one of us. It's exactly what God says to churches like Four Corners. God says to us, if you do my thing, if you engage me, if you'll carve out the time to engage where I'd like you to engage, I'll be with you. And me being with you is going to go a long way. In fact, me being with you is going to be the fundamental difference maker in your life. Moses, you tried to do it without me. Now I'm going to do, let you do it with me. And it's going to change everything. I'm going to let you not only do it with me, but I'm going to lead, instruct, guide, provide. I'm going to bring people alongside. I'm going to overcome your shortcomings. And yeah, I'm going to tell you straight up, it's going to be a little messy. But me being with you, well, that, that's a game changer. It's true for you. It's true for churches like ours. And over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack what it means to have God with us in church, in your life, as God doesn't build a building, as God doesn't build a monument to somebody else, doesn't prop up somebody's authority, but as God builds people's lives. It's really close to the heart of God. And he'd like for you to engage that priority he has. And he doesn't want you to engage it just for everybody else. He wants you to engage it for you. He wants to build your life. He really does. Some of those dreams and hopes and ambitions you had about what your marriage could look like and what you could do, some of those are going to be resurrected. Some of those are going to be shifted. Some of those are going to be cleaned up and made pure. 
But at the end of the day, what God wants to do is let you know he'd like to do it with you. In fact, he'd like to be in charge. He does that to churches, by the way. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to explain to you some of the ways that God's been speaking with clarity around us and saying, whatever else you do, four corners, whatever else you do, remember, I'm about people. I gave my life for people. I came and sent my son, died on a cross and resurrected so that people could experience the life-changing message of Jesus. So what I want you to do is why don't you grab out your Connect card and let me talk you through a couple next steps for us. I'm wondering um, if there's anybody in the room that would say, hey Ben, I, I feel like honestly I've been trying to do it a little bit on my own. And uh, I heard in the story of Moses some stuff that I can kind of resonate with. Maybe a sense of the delayed promise. Maybe a sense of, you know, a, a loss of who you believe God has made you to be and what he can do through you. Maybe there's just been a long delay. I, I, I don't know. But you would say that today what I'd like to do is I'd like to, in a very profound way, invite God to be a part of my life. I want to do it with him. So I'm accepting Jesus as my Savior and Lord for the first time. That's next step A. So on the back of your connect card, you can just check A. And it's an act of your faith that says, look, I'm going to receive the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. I want to follow him as the Lord of my life. Here's next step B. This is related to kind of where we're going with our journey. But I'd like for you to go ahead without me telling you what's going to happen. Set aside Sunday, November 13th from 6 p.m. until 7 p.m for a time of worship and celebration with this church. It's several weeks out. So if you check this box, I'll send you an email reminder that says, save this date and uh, come uh, celebrate with us what God's gonna begin doing through us, all right? And the next step C, here's what it is for us. I would like to commit to praying for the Build Lives message series and what God's gonna be doing with it for the next five weeks. I've given you just a touch and intentionally did not reveal too much. I want us to bathe this thing in prayer and make ourselves have a little room so we can see if God's not lighting some bushes around us. Our next step D is going to sound maybe a little strange to you, but I simply want you to do this. I want you to put away your Connect card. You can check D or not, but I'd like you to put it away. And as you do that, I'd like for you to look around on the floor near the seat where you are. And you're going to find a rock and a pen. Go ahead and grab those. They look like this a little bit. It's a little awkward, I know. You're like, where's you going with this? What's going on? It's okay. It's okay. Let me tell you what we're going to do with this. Moses, um, Moses was attracted to, uh, to the buildings, I'm sure, in Egypt. Everybody was. In fact, we still are. Moses had a sense of burden on him, too, about what he wanted to do. And yet life shifted and changed for him. And I have a hunch that maybe that, that's happened to some of us in the room. So what we're going to do is we're going to carve out a little time to pray. And as a way of just kind of identifying that we want God to be in charge and we're going to be with him, I want us to take the rocks, to remember our, the Moses story, the idea of building. And I want us to take the pen, if you're comfortable doing this, and to take a few moments right here and think about what maybe is going on in your journey of life, with God, without God, that you feel is a weight on you a challenge in front of you, an obstacle. You know, I got five or six things I could write on my rock. You know, like all of you, I've got family challenges. I have some personal health challenges. These are things that weigh on me. 
I got financial challenges. I, I don't know what your challenges are. But here's what I know about God. When God begins to get involved in our lives, we make room for him and we let him, we do it with him. When he says, I'll be with you, what he does is he lifts and begins to carry with the burdens we have. So what we're gonna do is, Justin and the band sing a song. I want you to take some time and write down that care. And then this will take a little bit of movement. I want you to get up out of your seat and come down the aisles. And here in this middle section, there are gonna be some of our ushers. They're gonna take your rock. They're not interested in what it says. It's yours, it's private, you can turn it upside down. And they're gonna begin to pile the rocks in the vase that we have right here, stacking them up. These rocks represent the challenges and the burdens as we see them. They represent the difficulties that we see between us and what we think we'd like God to do in our lives and maybe what even he would like to do in our lives we're not even aware of. It's a moment of honesty and transparency and vulnerability. We're gonna stack them up. And when we come down and we hand them to the usher to put into the thing, it's kind of like giving it to God, if you will. It's like the verse in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5 that says, we cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. So we give him the weight, we give him the burden, and we open ourselves up to let him be with us. We make room for him to work. We do that as individuals, as people who are called out from underneath the burden and called into something very different, called into something wonderful, profound, that's gonna stretch us and grow us and change us. So. Justin and the band are going to lead us in a song that's kind of familiar. Don't sing along. Take your time. Right. And then get up and come down. And when everybody's done, I'm going to come back up and lead us in a prayer. Now listen, if you don't need to do this, that's fine. It's okay. It's good. We're happy for you. There are a lot of us, though, that feel challenges about loved ones. and We, we would like to make some room for God right now. We'd like for God to build our lives. We'd like for Him to not only build lives through us, we'd like for Him to work in us. We want to make some time right now to experience whatever he has for us. That's what this is about. So would you do this? Take your pen and write. When you've done that, you can go ahead and stand up and come down.